2: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. The Alliance Theater is reimagining how we can all gather during this time of social distancing. Today, we'll hear from Atlanta playwright and director Pearl Clegg and associate artistic director Chris Moses about the upcoming Family Series season, which includes stream performances of Si-in a play written and produced by Pearl, Later this hour, we will also hear from playwright Will Power. He'll discuss his reinterpretation of Shakespeare's Richard III and how he directed it towards young audiences. But first, She-ATL is a summer theater festival that produces work by female-identifying playwrights and empowers them to self-produce. The festival started five years ago in New York City and has since expanded to Los Angeles and now Atlanta. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, She-ATL has had to transition to showcase these works online. Caitlin Hargraves and Erica Miranda, the executive producers of She-ATL, joined me last week to talk about the festival. They were joined by one of the female playwrights, Jocelyn Rick. Here, Erica begins by explaining why She-NYC was first created.
0: It was something that started based off of the percentages that a group of women-identifying creatives saw on Broadway. And they kind of had this moment where they were like, we know so many, you know, female playwrights that are writing and working, but we don't see their shows. Let's fix this. So Danielle, who is the artistic director for the entire festival and her development manager, Eden, reached out to me because it's a little over a year now, about a year and a half ago, and we're like, let's bring this to Atlanta. What do you say? <laughs> and of course I was like, absolutely, let's do it.
2: So how would you describe She ATL?
0: She ATL, um, well what's different. So the organization in general is is was created to empower women identifying writers to create their own work from page to production, right? So there's a lot of different elements that go into that, but essentially the festival provides some education, um, some resources, and essentially gives them a platform to explore their work and be producers themselves. GATL follows that pretty closely, but the difference for our first year is we wanted to keep it to just Georgia playwrights. So we opened up our submissions and received over 30 plays of Georgia female identifying playwrights and whittled it down to three awesome ones.
2: Wow, I bet that was a tough decision.
3: It really,
0: it really was. We had some amazing,
3: amazing writers. We had a, a team of readers. We we contracted, I think I actually was going over the numbers today, somewhere around 25 different readers to read through all of the different submissions and help us whittle it down from over 30 down to three. So something that I think uh, Eric and I both have prioritized as this is our first year is really finding our community and expanding our community. And um, surprisingly enough, going digital has actually really helped us to do that.
2: This is She ATL's inaugural year, and I know it was supposed to look differently when you guys were setting this up last year, but now it's going to be digital. Can you talk about how COVID nineteen has affected this year's?
0: Yeah, like Caitlin said, I think it was kind of like a blessing in disguise. We were all really bummed when it first happened, obviously, because we had been um, slated to to present the plays at the Windmill Art Center, which we hope to do so in the future. But the festivals LA and New York happened before us in July and August, and so they had known a little bit ahead of us that they were going to have to move digitally and we decided to just get on board with them and kind of take that decision from an earlier standpoint before a lot of things were completely closing um, in atlanta but what caitlin and i decided to do was to kind of like turn this summer into an incubator or into a lab for the writers and we hosted several panels throughout the month of july we paired each show with a writing mentor uh, to use as they saw fit. Um, and they've, you know, Jossie can talk about that too, but you know, they have someone who's been working, producing writing um, there by their side to kind of help them develop their piece. And I guess, I mean, Caitlin, you can tell them that about what happens next year, but it's it's kind of all to work up to a big 2021.
3: Yeah, that's right. This is sort of, this is, we're using this as, as our hype year in a way, I suppose. Um, <laughs> it wasn't expected, but it really did come out uh, all for the better to, to go digital. And um, it also allowed for our playwrights to get really creative with this platform. And, you know, we're so used to seeing theater in proscenium, you know, theater live. And, and what does that do when we, when we take that away? I think there's some things to be gained, some things to be lost, but I think we, we rolled with the punches pretty well and, and I'm excited to see what our incredible artists have, have made of it.
2: Yeah. And Jocelyn, you're one of the women who will be showcasing your play, Tough Love. Uh, can you give us a synopsis of it? Yeah, absolutely. I would be happy to. Um, so Tough Love, it's a drama
4: and it's set in a private school where a newly appointed principal has to confront a high profile student Uh, believed to have written an alarming note that was found in one of the classrooms. And uh, what should be a clear-cut case kind of devolves over the course of the day as she starts to question what's really at stake um, and where her loyalties lie in the
2: situation. And in the tagline, I see that it examines the lines between condemnation and compassion. How do you feel that the play is relatable to our current socio-political climate?
4: Oh, my gosh. Wow. So... (laughs) Wow. Uh, well, for me, when I'm writing, I really like to focus on like the intimacy of stories, the intimacy of individual characters and whatnot, um, which I think when you focus on specificity, you get a more universal understanding in general. So I'd say that just the idea, I want it to be a story about what unconditional love really looks like. And you have these characters that are grappling with what that sounds like to them, what they thought it looked like, and then not really getting hitting the mark quite right. <laughs> Um, so I think that, can, that says a lot about who we are in general as humans, maybe not specifically to our society, but as in a human way of examining what do you believe and why do you believe it? And is it preventing you from doing the most human thing, which is loving unconditionally?
2: Was it difficult planning out rehearsals and stuff with these actors being that we have to socially distance right now?
4: So we're entirely over Zoom for our rehearsals, um, which has been a trip, (laughs) but um, it's actually been great from a playwriting process because just hearing the words is so important for me, you know, Um, and being in that virtual space, even with these amazing actors just helps me rewrite. So I am very appreciative for that but it's definitely been a different experience being over the computer, you know, over the Zoom than being live and in front of each other.
2: Right. And will these performances be live? So we're going to, um, basically,
3: throughout this month, and actually one of our teams even started in July, they've been having rehearsals and filming different scenes through Zoom or in one person, one case, they're doing socially distanced filming. So they these will not be live. They will be pre-recorded, but there's no, like, crazy special effects or anything like that. I mean, you know, we are staying true to the essence of theater, but with, you know, internet instability and all sorts of crazy things, we wanted to be able to put up as much consistency as possible so that our, our audience is really able to get the most out of their, you know, their viewing.
0: But there is, there is one live streaming. So there is one time that you'll be able to see the show.
3: And knowing that you're, you're with an audience, a virtual audience, you're all watching this thing together, you know, which, which I think is a, is a cool thing about this moment that we can watch things
0: together apart. Right, <laughs> yes.
2: right. And so this won't be recorded for people to go back and watch multiple times. It's just a one-time performance. Correct. What platform will it be shown on?
0: So we have been using StreamYard to produce kind of like the back-end stuff, but it'll be a YouTube link. That you'll receive once you purchase your tickets.
2: Gotcha. And the ticket sales are actually going to go towards benefiting the Loveland Foundation. Can you tell us what this foundation does for communities of color?
3: Yeah, so it's a really amazing foundation. And they do, as you said, they target communities of color. And in particular, they focus on black women and girls. Essentially, their their main focus is to provide um, mental health support, mental health, financial support. So it's a really cool foundation. I mean, whether you're interested in in buying a ticket or not, I definitely encourage everybody to, to look into the Loveland Foundation. We're so lucky that we're able to contribute to their incredible fund and something that's definitely, you know, as a she forward festival, we're, you know, really excited that we get to help women.
0: Yeah, and it's it's really cool. Like you were saying, Caitlin, their focus is mental health and whatnot, and the the organization themselves has like a therapy fund and kind of really make it accessible to Black women and girls and in, in their respective communities. So it, it's it's really it's really great. And we're really excited about it.
2: Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Can either of you guys tell us about the other two plays that are going to be shown on August twenty seventh and twenty eighth?
0: Yeah, the opener of our festival is August 27th at 8pm. And that is a safe space written by Rissa Catherine Marie. A safe space, I'd love to describe it as a little bit of a thriller uh, because there's some really surprising and really brave moments that she works into her script. But essentially a safe space delves into the deep rooted issues of sexism and racism and prejudice within the workplace. And specifically from a point of view of women and women of color. So it's, it's, re- it's really great. She's got, a, she's got an awesome thing going. And then our second show is on August 28th at 8 p.m. And that is Persephone and the Hum, written by Christina Junt and Becca Del Plato. That's our one duo team there. Persephone is a Greek adaptation of the story Persephone and Hades told through the lens of um, a Southern family in, in the rules who is dealing with the themes of addiction and also mental health. Um, And it's a story about how Persephone, who is our lead character, struggles with these things and her family helps her to hopefully get out of them.
2: Are there any humorous elements to these plays or are they pretty serious, straightforward? There's plenty of humor woven in and
3: out. I, I, you know, I think the thing that makes these playwrights so talented is that they balance the drama and the humor, the depth and the levity so well. Yeah, while, while they're definitely dealing with some very serious content, and actually in each one, there are nods to mental health, which is another reason that uh, working with the Loveland Foundation is, is a great thing for us. But yeah, I think, I think there's definitely a little bit of everything for a little bit of
5: everyone.
0: Well, and, and also to go off of that, each show kind of, and we didn't plan it this way, but they all kind of fall in different genres. They definitely have their own voice um, these playwrights do. And within that, you know, for example, Persephone and the Hum kind of works in this little magical realism and there's movement and there's music and um in a safe space. I mean, she's really witty and there's some dry humor, but there's also some really kind of laugh out loud moments. It's gonna be really special.
2: What do you guys think? And this could be for anybody, including Jocelyn, you feel free to chime into this one. What do you think is the biggest stigma or stereotype about female playwrights, directors, producers, what have you? Oh goodness, how much time do we have? <laughs> you know, it's such
3: a tricky space. I'm saddened by by the fact that it is difficult. It is harder for women to get produced. And those are those are just the numbers. It is also crazy that there are typically more female playwrights in the space, out of graduate programs, out of universities. We have a lot of female-identifying playwrights. So it's sad that that they're not getting as produced as often. But um, again, that's why organizations like she are so important.
0: One of the things that I keep, and, and we talk about a lot, Caitlin, is the boxes that women often get put in, in terms of uh, characters that are written for them, usually by male counterparts, you know, or even on the producing end, the expectations are are kind of shifted into these boxes, right? And, you know, we're not just an image, you know, there's tends to be a, a lack of complexity for women characters, you know, again, both in front and behind the scenes. And I think that, I mean, again, bringing it back to the festivals and the writers, what we've explored throughout the summer, with these panels of women producing in Atlanta and producers in California and New York, is that there is such a complexity and such an ownership behind writing and behind words. And it's just become so exciting and evident to me that like, words can be how we begin to chip away at our human experience, right? And watching these writers take ownership of their pieces and really be the person who commands the space, who commands their production in a way that writers aren't often seen, you know? And this goes back to specifically like women writers, but writers in general, depending on their plays or films, it's it's often kind of their words are taken from them, right? And we're Watching these writers take ownership of their words and give the world how they envision their pieces. And what I think we'll see is just a, a, a vehicle for change, right? And a vehicle for, for really awesome future in the theater and beyond. So that's hopefully what we're changing <laughs> with women in, in the industry.
2: Besides what she ATL is doing, what strides do you feel the entertainment industry needs to make in order to integrate women identifying people more fairly?
3: That's a great question, Summer. Thank you. And I think it starts from the get-go of hiring, right? So really evaluating where you're at with, with whatever company or discipline you're working within and seeing the ratios, looking at those numbers and, and asking yourself if they're fair. And and not only with, with women, but also with, with BIPOC artists as well, right? And just simply taking scope of your numbers is a great place to start Um, and then considering the kinds of roles that you're writing for women I mean as an actor I can't tell you how many times I've gotten theatrical or film breakdowns that are like the cute girl in the corner you know so or like the mom with the toddler and and that's that's not person right (laughs) like that's not a fully evolved being And, and those are the stories I want to see.
4: Amen to that. I Can I make a comment about this? Um, Please. <laughs> so I also do some freelance script coverage for screenplays as well. So I can uh, absolutely attest to the fact that there are some atrocious character descriptions for women, you know, 20s, blonde, beautiful. And that's like, that's who she is. <laughs> like, you know, that's how she operates in this world is just like this beautiful woman who says all the tropey lines. <laughs> but even more so than that. I think you're right on, Caitlin, with like changing behind the scenes because there's kind of almost a falseness to like theater and film that there is like a diversity in female and male um, representation now, like that we're writing these great female characters nowadays. But if you look behind the scenes, it's like, well, they're all written by White men, you know, so it's like how, so you're, it's like a false, okay, well, there's more women on screen, maybe, but, you know, what are they talking about? What are their conversations? You know, are they talking like real women? Like, or are they talking like a white man writes a woman? So, yeah, I think it just starts from uh, understanding that there's a lot more under the surface that don't just trust that what the surface is giving you is representative of what's really going on behind the
2: scenes. Mm-hmm. I really like Caitlin how you said like taking note of who you're employing who are you talking to and everything like that and kind of keeping yourself accountable you know if you are wanting to produce a film like who are you hiring in that process is important. So going back to She ATL, I know that you had mentioned something about 2021 but I wanted to ask do you think online showings is something that could be permanently a part of future lineups?
0: I think at this point, anything goes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, I, I definitely, I mean, we want so badly. I think, like most of us theater people and, and whatnot, want to be in the theater space as soon as we can, given that it's appropriate and safe. But Caitlin and I have explored, like, what our year means in between the summer festivals, right? I think what Jossie said at the beginning is, is really great, that the Zoom platform does lend itself to, to a playwriting process, perhaps, which is what our focus is. So, I mean, totally open to it. But 2021, we know we're crossing our fingers and hoping that we can get back into the theater.
3: And we'll be, excitingly, and hopefully we'll be producing uh, these Three plays that will have this online version of this summer. We'll hopefully be producing those three plays in a theater space next summer, along with ideally a couple more. So it's neat that we'll get to see this process evolve even more.
2: Caitlin Hargraves and Erica Miranda, the executive producers of She ATL. Joining them was playwright Jocelyn Rick. Her play, Tough Love, will air Saturday at 8 p.m. The virtual festival begins tonight at 8 p.m. More information about where to stream the performances can be found on our website at wabe.org slash citylights.
6: The Alliance Theater takes special care with its children's programming, and the result is comprehensive. Their education program begins with children from age 12 months, we're talking one-year-olds, on up through teen years. Christopher Moses is the Director of Education and Associate Artistic Director of the Alliance. He joins us now with the Alliance Mellon Playwright-in-Residence, Pearl Clegg. What a delight to have you both Zooming in.
7: Thank you.
5: Always a pleasure to be with you. Absolutely, Lois. Wouldn't miss a chance to talk to you.
6: Well, given the pandemic, how did you put together a season for the Children's Theatre?
5: we are still piecing this together, but the decision we made early on was to move all of our programming virtual. There just seemed to be so much uncertainty for families, for students, for educators. And we thought the sooner we could make that decision, that would just be one constant. So people wouldn't have to wonder and wait and see if and when we'd be creating these incredible experiences for young people. I think a lot of folks have come to rely on us um, to develop stories that are uh, um, developmentally appropriate for every possible age group. And Lois, I will say we have audience members who are even younger than one years old. (laughs) So it, it, it took a lot of creativity and a lot of faith on the entire team to say no matter what, we are still going to tell stories. So Pearl and I had discussions early on uh, at the end of March and just kind of linked arms and said, you know, we, at our heart, we need to tell stories to the community and we need to figure out how, what we do and why we do it has not changed
6: one single bit. For example, the first play,
7: yours, Pearl, Sit In. Sit In it's uh it's going to be very different um because we're doing um animation for these characters which is really um a wonderful opportunity for us to do something brand new and a terrifying opportunity for me to do something brand new because i know nothing about animation so we've been working to try to figure out what does that mean what does it look like and i'm so excited about what the team has been putting together because it allows us to have some of the um, wonderful things that filmmakers have at our disposal that we don't usually use on the stage so that we can use archival footage to tell the story um, of the sit-in movement. But we can also use um, footage from today because we are are linking the sit-in movement to young people today marching for climate change. So that we're, we're hoping that by telling these stories in ways that are, are new, but accessible and much more comfortable um, sometimes for our young participants um, who grew up with all of this technology. But it, it's giving us a great opportunity to continue to reach audiences and new audiences and growing audiences. We're bringing their own expectations of what they want to see.
6: Well, and those animated actors won't give you any grief like the human ones do. <laughs>
7: I love actors, they never give me any grief. It's directors who have to deal with that grief for the <laughs> play,
6: right? <laughs> Sit In is inspired by the picture book written by Andrea Pinkney and illustrated by her husband, Brian Pinkney. We spoke a few weeks ago when. The exhibition was about to open at the High Museum, and it was not only a fascinating discussion because of the wonderful books and the beautiful illustrations, but just talking about how one approaches such serious material, material that has violence and even tragedy. How do you approach that for young children?
7: The main thing is you have to tell children the truth, but you have to tell them the truth in an age-appropriate way so that very young children can understand fairness. They can understand discrimination and segregation in terms of fairness because children are very attuned that that's not fair. And I watched um, Andrea Pinkney when she was here for our reading in front of a group of third graders, which was nerve wracking, but turned out wonderfully. I watched her lead a discussion with those very young audience members about fairness. How can you tell when something isn't fair? How do you intervene when something isn't fair? So that I think that the, the challenge that we had was not telling them everything was fine and it was easy, but also knowing that um, there are, are um, stories that have to be built over time so that their first exposure may be to the beginnings of the, the sit-in movement. And while they will know that there was violence, because in our play, one of the very young participants asked her grandfather who was um, in the sit-ins um, here in Atlanta, you know, did anybody ever get hurt? And he tells her the truth, yes, some people even died. And, Were you ever afraid? And he says, yes, I was. Because I think the truth within the context of a fully told story um, is not something that will terrify children, but that will help them understand the world around them um, as they grow into it.
6: You approached painful material when you wrote a play for middle schoolers some years back. And I remember you're telling me that you were thinking about your 11-year-old grandson, I believe, at the time. Yes. That, um, you know, for kids who came of age during President Obama's years, the events of the early 20th century just not only were remote, they were almost impossible to understand. And with this, I know you were an activist yourself. You, you witnessed protests and sit-ins. How much of your experience are you bringing to this children's play?
7: Oh, I think a lot of my experience, the, the fact that I grew up in a movement family and was very involved in picketing places and, and having um, an active role in voter drives. And I was in Detroit so that I was not in uh, places where we were actually afraid of physical violence um, from the sheriff and things like that. But we were definitely challenging um, the mores and the way things were done. But I think that because I grew up in it, I never was afraid of it. So that when writing about this little girl who wants to be involved, she isn't really afraid because she is growing up in a family, which she discovers um, during the course of our play, um, a family that already has this history, a grandfather who has this history. Um, Because I think the context is everything and helping children understand the context of what they're looking at when they look at the news today. um, If they have a context that allows them to understand how these issues develop and what they can do, it will actually reassure them that the country is moving in a righteous direction, that things used to be very different, and now they're better because citizens got involved. So that's always what we want is for people to understand the history and then to embrace being involved in making that
1: history.
6: Will the animation in the film reflect the Pictures, the illustrations Brian Pinkney made for the book?
5: They will certainly reference some of his work. The one um, image that has been instrumental and kind of our North star for the entire project is the lunch counter um, with its bends and turns and twists. And that was the one image that kept coming back to as well. And now we were able to invite these filmmakers into the process and from day one, that was part of the conversation. And our filmmakers, I I, I have to reference Matthew and David Ataboye, who are the founders of Palette Group, have just been incredibly generous and creative and willing to test out this new form of storytelling. Um, And while the animation is is wholly its own thing, just as Pearl's play is not a retelling of sit-in, but is a, a completely contemporary Um, fictionalized story of this family the the animation will live in a different world but that central image is front and center and it would be impossible to be where we are without coming back to that image constantly
6: so will the play the animation for sit-in live on virtually or is it a limited run just as a play would have a limited run Lois, that
5: is such a a wonderful question, and and there have been several gifts within the the sometimes unbearable constraints of having to create this way. But but one of those gifts is that finally we are not as ephemeral as we normally are. It is not that there is all this work put into a four week run. Given the platform, there is a chance that this could live on not only throughout the entire school year, which is certainly the plan right now, but even beyond so that students, educators, family can families can return to this story um, as a way to open up conversations uh, about some difficult things and as a way to start making sense of what's going on in the world. What Pearl has written um, is beautiful in so many ways, but one of my favorite parts about it is that this is an intergenerational conversation that is at the heart of this play so it really does give people from different generations a chance to uh, uh, enter into conversations that they may normally avoid having with with either younger people or older people.
6: Pearl is wonderful at doing that I saw on the credits under Pearl's name it lists others and one that surprised me was original compositions by eugene h russell the fourth is that our eugene russell the actor
7: yes it is who is also a very talented musician he is a wonderful uh keyboard player saxophone player um and composer of music And we have been so um, just really uh, fortunate to have him. He did um, some music from the wonderful um, production for young audiences um, about Blackbird. Um, He did all original music and he's doing original music for us as well. So it's it's our same Eugene, the wonderful actor who is also a wonderful music person.
6: I did not know about that additional talent he oh, had. And it's massive. And, and Eugene,
5: I'll just give a plug for Eugene. Not only is he busy composing incredible songs for this project, he has a new album that he's about to release. So make sure to
6: uh, keep your eyes peeled for that. The multi-generational theme continues with In My Granny's Garden. And we've had the joy of talking about the book as well as the theatrical production, I see it is going to be an audio play. Yes,
5: it, it's gonna be both an audio experience as well as we are going to um, release the stream of that play. Because one of the sad things, that that play was about to open the week that the Woodruff Arts Center closed and when the Alliance could no longer um, invite audiences into the building. But we were fortunate to capture a rehearsal video, which we did stream and which um, people from nine different countries talk about other gifts that come from uh, having a new platform. We're able to tune in this spring to see that play. We're going to release that again in the fall and then accompanying that will be a bunch of different audio experiences um, that, that focus on what are different sounds that come from gardens. We're also looking at concerts written by young people and performed by professional musicians around gardening. And fall just seems like the perfect harvest time to really uh, um, go back to Granny's Garden, go back to those beautiful images that Radcliffe Bailey painted and go back to Pearl and Zeron's gorgeous language for that book and live in it one more time. My hope is I, I talked to Pearl about that there, there may even be some some audio interview with her and um, her gardening husband and co-writer, oh. Sarah and Burnett.
7: I love that Crystal's talking about the sounds that are in a garden. And I'm thinking, okay, the sounds that are in Zarin's garden are like the Temptations playing sometimes, the Four Seasons playing sometimes. So there's always there's the music.
6: Oh, wow. You know... It, you mentioned how sad it was that the run was so short. Z- Zarin and Pearl were the lat. That was the last live interview that I had at the station I was with you two, and we were even careful about. This was not easy. Not hugging, but we we bumped elbows.
7: Yes, and that's you know it's so different having to do interviews with you like this, where we're used to seeing you face to face and doing, um, you know, we did the collision project online with uh, Zoom and we're doing um, the play with animation. So everything is very different. But I think one of the things that is really um, been important for me is that we're able to keep creating work. We're able to keep telling stories. And so our question is never, oh, we're in despair. We can't do our work anymore. It's like, okay, this is a time when we have to be really really creative about how we do this work that we love and working with chris working with the people who are at the alliance we are all committed to continuing to tell these stories however long it takes however long it takes for us to get back to what we knew but better it's going to take us some time but we're going to work in the meantime every day to keep telling the truth and telling our stories
6: well it really is uplifting, Pearl, because I guess if one is trying to find any sort of silver lining, this has certainly not replaced live performance. Nothing can. But it has expanded some opportunities. I mean, here you're talking about animation and audio plays and sound effects. And in the regular course of arts business you know those things might not have been considered
5: not at all i mean i think that is one of the the most thrilling things it it are it's opened up a whole new world of collaborators um these filmmakers illustrators animators video um, engineers and editors and and what we're Constantly trying to do, and and what I feel Pearl referenced the collision project. What I, I feel like the Pawelski collision project did so well is show us that we're not shying away from the theatrical, and we are not uh, we are not suddenly filmmakers, but we are colliding our art form with all of these others to to create something uh, that we've never quite seen before. It's still very much theatrical, and yet there are all these other elements and new collaborators that we're able to work with. Um, It requires an intense amount of humility (laughs) to realize how much we don't know about certain other areas, but it also can be really invigorating.
6: Can you give us a peek at some of the rest of the children's theater season?
5: Sure. So um, we'll kick off with Sit-In and then In My Granny's Garden, and then for the winter production for our Theater for the Very Young season uh, is a brand new piece created by Olivia Aston Bosworth and Samantha Provenzano, who are dynamite um, artists who who really spent their entire career working on developing work for, for really young audiences, that zero to five age group. And this piece called knock knock the sounds of winter again we're leaning into the soundscape um, It's designed for that youngest set of people and it's about the celebrations that we hear during the winter time so it'll take place in an apartment building and we'll get to hear four different episodes that showcase different ways people tend to celebrate the holiday season um, and this will be a multimedia experience and what's really interesting and challenging about creating virtual work for say a two-year-old we know that being glued to a screen is not the best way to engage with them so we're trying to figure out how to use the technology to get them away from the technology so it's kind of this invitation to keep playing and that's why we're doing these short episodic uh, uh, versions that we're really looking forward to and then after that, for a slightly older age group, we will be remounting our wonderful production of naked mole rat Gets dressed And this is a rock and roll show. And sadly, this had to close after less than a week of a run in March. But we did capture that virtually as well. And we are going to re release that stream because so many people found that story so incredibly uplifting. And what I love, I don't know if you were able to see it, Lois, but the story at its heart is about this young, um mole rat (laughs) wilbur j mole rat who dares to ask what i think is the most provocative question why not and by asking that question of his colony it really upends all of these assumptions that people just took to be givens and it ultimately creates a more equitable and just um mole rat colony and it's a fantastic rock and roll musical. So it's the idea of of inviting young people into this really fun um, moving story that's filled with with glorious music written by Debbie Wicks LaPuma. So I'm delighted that we'll be able to bring that back to audiences um, throughout the world. Again, when we released it in March, um, there were uh, uh, people from all over the world tuning in. And this was Uh written by children's picture book author, Mo Willems.
6: I'm very intrigued with the title of the season's final production.
5: The Sounds of the West End. Um, this is uh, uh, yet another soundscape um, theater for the Very Young project that we'll be working on. And it's inspired by the book from the Mayor Summer Reading Club that, that we commissioned. It was written by the great playwright, poet, educator, Will Power and illustrated by, I think, one of the foremost um, picture book illustrators who is featured in the upcoming Picture of the Dream exhibit at the High, R. Gregory Christie. And that book is a celebration of the historic West End um, and tells the story of this young boy who is meeting with his grandmother and finds out that she gets a diagnosis and can no longer eat the food that she made, the food that held this family together and this boy grieves for a moment, but then goes out with his mother into his community, walks through the West End, and finds all of these amazing vegan restaurants that are there, and comes Hi. back and creates this new, healthier path forward. So it celebrates a bunch of beloved Atlanta restaurants like the Seelies and um, and and the pictures are just amazing. So what we wanna do with this um, virtual piece is really pick up some of the sounds of that um, neighborhood. and We're working with a great sound designer, Chris Lane, at Multiband Studios. We'll be doing some original compositions with other composers, um, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, Amina Kaplan, who's just a multi-talented artist, is going to be uh, the director on record of that one.
6: i got to say, with the likes of willpower and pearl Clegg. uh, these kids are getting quite the sophisticated treatment from playwrights
7: this is extraordinary there is nothing so challenging as trying to write a play for young people very young people because you have to throw your ego out the window and just focus on how can I tell them the story in a language that will make them love it? And it's um, it's a humbling experience, but it's exhilarating when it works. So it's, it's kind of like adult audiences, except scarier.
5: <laughs> More honest, I would say for sure, yeah. One of my favorite audiences, Pearl, ever for a workshop, we were doing a reading, Pearl referenced it earlier, of sit-in back when this was a theatrical play um and we invited a a group of third graders and there were um maybe 20 70 80 year olds in the audience as well and just that um intergenerational audience was dynamic you would see the older crowd watching the third graders the third graders uh uh just immediately responding however they wanted to And, and as pearl said you can't hide behind any kind of lightness from an audience, you are hearing exactly what they are thinking.
6: Well, I just wanted to say that it's always a joy to talk with you. And we go beyond joy. You you two are such an inspiration. Pearl Clegg, Chris Moses, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Lois
2: author and playwright Pearl Clegg. She was joined by Chris Moses, Dan Reardon, Director of Education and Associate Artistic Director. For more information on the Alliance Theater's upcoming children's season, check our website at wabe.org citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Summer Evans, and for Lois Wrightsis, thank you for listening. Playwright Will Power joined Lois back in February ahead of his play Seize the King, opening at the Alliance Theater. He talked with her about his reinterpretation of the universal themes in Shakespeare's Richard III, aimed towards young audiences.
1: You know, it's interesting with Richard III because, for better or for worse, a lot of the issues and the themes and the concepts That Shakespeare is wrestling with in his version are still prominent today. And I say better for worse because in some ways it's good because we have these classics that we can still learn from. It's for worse because sometimes I wish as a species we would have moved past some some of these things of corruption and power and real vileness that's in our world. So I really wanted to take this old classic and contemporize and modernize it, and fuse an old ancient world with our world. So the language of the piece is in iambic pentameter, so it's in that ancient poetic meter, but I infuse it with both contemporary and past references. So people say thou and oh heck no, and you know, (laughs) balance it out. And then the same thing with the characters. The characters exist in this fusion world. So They are Anne and Richard and Reverend Shaw and Lord Buckingham, but they also might reference orchards as easily as they reference a strip mall or something like that. So it's almost like the idea is that these things in us we still are wrestling with. So these worlds that existed many years ago are still present today, both the good and the bad.
6: And what themes
1: are at the essence of this play? I try to take a frank and honest look into the question of who are we as human beings you know that's a pretty big question
6: shakespeare was
1: good with big questions as in to be or not that's right (laughs) that's right that's right that's right and so i think i'm trying to wrestle with that for our society today questions like power love justice revenge and underneath all of those things the question of who are we as a species what are we and are we virtuous, or are we corrupt and evil? And obviously, we have both of those things weaving through us as human beings. But what is the core? And I don't know if I fully answer it, but that's what the exploration is. Now, I feel like I'm a pretty optimistic person. I do feel like we're good, that everyone is good at the heart. But there also is some evidence to maybe suggest the contrary sometimes. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what this piece is exploring. And the other thing is that how do these virtues in us, these beautiful levels of empathy and beauty and warmth that we have as human beings, how does that resurface from one generation to another? And then how does the corruption and the greed and the selfishness and the evil and the violence, how does that resurface from one generation to another? Like waves. So that's kind of what I'm looking at. How are these things reborn?
6: Richard has a
1: backstory. Sure.
6: Would, in today's speech, would you say he was the other?
1: I think that there is some people who feel like Richard, the actual historical figure, wasn't necessarily as vile, or as corrupt, or as manipulative as it was in the Shakespeare piece. But I'm taken from the idea of what Richard symbolically represents, and to me, Richard was a guy who always felt like he was in the shadow of someone else, that he was never getting his fair due, whether it was from his older brother or whether it was from then his nephew. So he wanted to have a time where he can step into power, but he wasn't really in that line because after his brother died, then the son was going to be that. So he's like, I'm tired of being second fiddle, second best, second born. He has this whole line about second, second, second. And I think there are a lot of people, right or wrong, that feel that today in America, they feel like they've been passed over. They feel like they don't have jobs in their towns and so some people react from that against the system some people react against other people like it's those people's fault but i feel like richard his insecurity and his anger at the core is very relevant today in a lot of populations in america not the manifestation of evil but the feeling of insecurity and of want and like i'm tired of being passed over that's a very broad-minded look at Mm. it Hmm. We tease that out in this piece, too, because it has to be relevant, particularly for young people. You know, it has to be like, what is this about today? I don't like when people teach Shakespeare or they do stuff and it's just like this kind of archaic stuffy, like dusty, you know. It's like if you can't bring out the issues and the energies of yesterday to make it relevant today, it's no point.
6: And so your belief in the power of theater to bring about these conversations yeah. is stronger than ever, it seems.
1: For me, I have a number of colleagues, friends, who have kind of gone into film and television, and I've been kind of trying to hold out. And there's nothing wrong with film and television. It's a great medium, especially right now with television. It's fantastic as far as storytelling. One of the things that I think theater can do really well is bring people living, breathing sweating people into a theater, into a space to watch a story with living, breathing, sweating people, and then hopefully have a dialogue, a discourse about it afterwards in that moment. And I think if theater can do that, that's a big part of its purpose. And if it's not, we might as well just stay home and watch Netflix because there's some good stuff on Netflix. You know, I've been to some theaters, and the Alliance is not really one of them, which is great. But some theaters, it's like you see the show, and then as soon as you come out, there's an exit that goes right to the parking lot. You go into your car, and you drive off. But I think that's a great opportunity missed if we don't have gathering spaces, not just before and during, but after the show. So that's, to me, what theater can do best.
2: That is playwright Will Power discussing his reinterpretation of Shakespeare's Richard III. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 with one of the organists at the Fox Theater, Ken Double. He'll be giving us a preview of the virtually streamed Mighty Moo organ concert this weekend. Our City Lights producers are Ryan McFadden and myself. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker and Lois Reitzes is our host. I'd love it if you'd follow her on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. You can listen back to interviews and shows from the City Lights archives at wabe.org slash City Lights. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.